Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Previously on Mentally Yours. I never really liked myself when I was younger. And when I got to the age of 14, I kind of decided to pick on a certain feature that I didn't like. And I picked my weight. And that quite quickly spiraled into an eating disorder for me, which was anorexia. And then I had that for kind of two or three years. It's Mentally Yours from Ellen and it's mentally yours. That's Metro.co.uk's weekly mental health podcast if you haven't been catching up with us recently. Thanks for joining us. I'm Yvette. And I'm Ellen. And this week we're talking to Carol, who has dissociative identity disorder, also known as DID, and she blogs about that at DID Dispatches. So we're going to be chatting to Carol about what it's like to live with DIDs, how it's affected her life, how it's affected her family, friendships and work, and basically essentially what it is. It's not very well understood and so it's really great to have her here to tell us what it's like, really. And also to battle misconceptions, because it's not like the film Split. Basically, dissociative identity disorder, as, as also known as DID, you've undergone usually a trauma. Um, in my case, it was childhood trauma. And it was at such an extent that the only way I could survive that was to dissociate. And we all dissociate. We all autopilot or daydream at some point. But for me, it became such an issue that it was to such an extreme. It became dysfunctional and it was my automatic response. That led to me creating separate parts or identities. And so for someone to have DID, you have to have two or more separate identities but in reality, I'm not multiple heads. I'm just one person and those are just separate parts of me. Yeah, I think a lot of people think of it as multiple personality. And I think a lot of um, films and books have maybe portrayed it in not really an accurate way. What do you think are some of the misconceptions people have about it? I think for me, there's a lot of misconception in the media, to be fair, isn't always great with that. 
you know, you wouldn't notice me switching. Um, it, when I was really unwell, it was it was often and chaotic, but it was very subtle. So to someone who didn't know me, you would just see me. Um, unless I behaved in a childlike manner, you wouldn't have realised I was switching from an adult to a child part. Um, so it doesn't, you know, I don't go around with four heads or five heads. Um, and I think it is just the myth that we all, you know, for some people, and I've seen on the media that they dress differently for different parts. And yes, certain parts of me like certain styles, but it's not to an extreme that I changed 30 times in a day. When I was switching consistently all the day long, I didn't go and get changed every five minutes. It isn't a disorder, which is a personality disorder. And I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions. DID is not a personality disorder. Absolutely. Because I saw this film called Split. Yes. Which Have you seen that? So uh, I've seen a, seen a bit of it, but not yeah. all of it. Yeah, the trailer. Because um, I don't know much about DID, but I saw that film. And I thought, well, I'm sure this isn't accurate because they're portraying somebody with mental health issues, but they do have completely different uh, personalities. And as you said, they're, they're sort of dressing differently. Well, they're essentially being different people. And so for an actor, like playing the role, obviously that's a great role because they get to play, I can't remember how many, it's almost like seven different people. Mm-hmm. But from a sort of perspective of that sort of condition that they're meant to have, you do sort of think, well, I just thought, well, I, I, I doubt that that was very accurate. I think for me, um, often, and I can understand why they do it, it's to portray the switching from one part to another in a very extreme way. But it isn't a good reflection of my life, and I'm sure many other people's. I refer to myself in a way, I think the analogy I would use is the film Inside Out, where Riley has a control centre in her brain with lots of different parts, and they're all linked to emotions. Well, in, inside my brain, there are lots of different parts and the best way they can work together is to work collaboratively. Um, so for me, I think that film portrayed DID in its own little way um, far better than Split or any others, really. How many identities do you have or have you had at one point? I think when I was very unwell, I stopped counting when I got to 20. Um, I'm now aware of four or five different parts of me that are still around um, but we work as one team now, so it's a lot easier. Um, but at the worst, it was we stopped counting at 20 and it just kept going. How like distinct are they and how can you kind of tell, how can you tell that they're separate parts? Different feelings, mm. different moods. Um, we would perceive things differently. We would feel very detached. And at my, when I was very unwell, um, before I started treatment, I didn't believe they were actually parts of me. I thought as, of them as very separate entities. And I couldn't comprehend that the memories they held or the emotions they held um, were my emotions or my memories. And so there was a very distinct sort of amnesic barrier between me and them for quite some time when I first started treatment. And what exactly happened with them? I mean, did different ones kind of take over or how did it it actually work? I think for me, um, it's when you can't cope with something. I would switch off. I would go to the back and another part would step in just to keep us going and keep us safe. Or they would, if they felt overwhelmed, um, you know, I used to self-harm. And sometimes that wouldn't, I wouldn't even know I'd done it. I'd wake up to find I'd cut myself. And that was because I'd gone away because I just couldn't cope with the situation. The part that came out couldn't cope either. And the only way they could deal with it was to hurt myself. Mm. Does that mean different parts come out in response to kind of different triggers? Yes. Mm. So we would be triggered um, 
certain situations. For me, one of the biggest triggers I had was in the kitchen. My memories in the kitchen as a young child were quite scary. And so every time I would walk into my kitchen, I'd come round back to the fore a time later, having not been able to cook food or make a drink, um, often causing chaos and, and losing an hour in the process. Um, and it took a long time for me to realise that the kitchen was a safe place. With the different identities, you say you now have four or five. Yeah, that, I'm a, that are prominently a part of me and we work as a team. Do you feel now that they're parts of yourself that you created or do you feel that they're parts that were kind of always there within you? I think they've always been there. I think my inner child is just my inner child. Um, my child parts are part of me. So... When I go off and had fun, like the other day I was at um, a festival and there was a carousel and I was dragging my, my adult son onto this carousel ride because there was a part of me that I could feel the excitement inside of, you know, I need to do this ride. Um, and I guess I'm fortunate in some ways because having that inner child means I actually experience the world in much better colour sometimes than than someone who doesn't have a, a very good handle of their inner child because I get to feel, feel the excitement at Christmas. I get to feel the excitement when I do things like the carousel and the excitement of a child and see things in a wonder of a child instead of just an adult. What are the other parts apart from the inner child? I have a couple of parts. My, I've got a very good creative part. She's called Lindsay and it took me a long time to actually trust Lindsay. She carried a lot of emotion from my teenage mm. years. And so for a long, long time, I totally blanked every time she her feelings came to the fore I would just switch off and I could be off for 24 hours I was really terrified of her feelings and it took me a long time to get to know her but actually she's a real help and together we can do a lot more things because of her being there she gives me a bit more strength I think and she's very very creative so I get to do lots of creative activities now that I would never have dreamed that I was possibly able to do like what? I do watercolour painting. Um, we started off going to classes once a month, mm. mainly to see if we could use it, the time to help us work better together. Um, and now I still keep going, even though the actual rule of them helping me to work better together is no longer needed. I actually enjoy going and giving her that space and time. Do they all have names? The five I have currently do, yes. Do you feel that you named them yourself or that they sort of named themselves? I think they named themselves. When I was first in treatment, um, a previous therapist encouraged me to name them, which I did. And when I actually started my um, my last psychologist, those parts of, were very clear in that some of them did not like their names. And he said, well, why have you named them? Surely it's their job to tell you who they are. Why have you taken that decision away from them? And so I went back and said, okay, you tell me your names and those are the names they now have. And so you've got Lindsay who's creative. Can you tell us a bit about the others? Lucy is a precocious five-year-old who likes to do lots of play. I have a smaller child um, called Millie who um, just tends to... We have a teddy bear and she likes teddy bear being in bed. So I do sleep with my teddy bear. I'm not averse to that. I have a, a younger, a child of about nine who's very quiet and shy and sensitive um, and then I have um, an adult part, Caitlin, who I guess helps me with my studies. She's quite an officious, organised person. So when I start doing, you know, massive decluttering of the house, I know she's about because she's encouraging. She's that kind of person that would do that. So she's my other adult part at the moment. 
And when you wake up kind of on an average morning, is it basically a process of having a conversation with them all or are they sometimes, is it sometimes just you there or sometimes uh, there are a couple there? How does it feel? For me, I always start the day with a conversation. I check in. I ask if anyone wants to, you know, if everyone's okay. Um, I outline what we're doing for the day, what I've got planned. Um, and if they're not happy with that, I'll, I'll get a feeling. It will usually be their emotions that I feel. Um, and then I realise something's not right and I have to do a bit more chatting to find out who's worried about something or if there's a need for something. It may be as simple as I've promised to do something and I have I've forgotten and they'll let me know. And it's all about internal dialogue. Um, and when I first started treatment, I couldn't quite comprehend the idea that you'd talk to yourself. But I guess we all self-talk in different ways. I just have to do it a little bit more than perhaps other people. Do you mind me asking what sort of what was the most dramatic or chaotic thing that happened when you were dissociating? I came to one day on the edge of a train platform. All I knew was I was about to jump. Um, and I stepped back instead of stepping forward, but I was about in the act and I literally, it was the split second just before I would have jumped, I guess. And I was terrified. And yet I had no understanding of how I'd got there. And when I told professionals, you know, I, I didn't intend to hurt myself today. I had no one, you know, intent on doing this. I don't even know how I got here. Nobody comprehended that properly. And I think professionals at the time, and, and still I think sometimes are very sceptical. Um, and so at that point in time, I hadn't got the lab, the diagnosis. And so people were more judgmental of my behaviour. And so they couldn't understand why, you know, I was saying I didn't know how I'd got somewhere. And that was really scary to realise that, you know, it could have happened. How long beforehand were you sort of not aware? About an hour and a half. So I'd obviously walked from home, got to the train station. And, and that to me was the scariest thing because I realised just how vulnerable I really, and I felt vulnerable at that point. And nobody could quite comprehend how much that frightened me. That sounds terrifying. Mm. I think knowing that your body is capable of taking you somewhere without you being aware of it. Yeah. It's really unsettling. I think it didn't help because I was suicidal at points because I just couldn't cope with the flashbacks. Mm. But at the same time I was harming, there were times I was harming I had no idea. So I was trying really hard in hospital to not self-harm. And then I came to one day and I'd harmed. And everyone was telling me off for harming and I'm sitting there thinking, but I didn't do this. And, and looking back, yes, I did, because it was a part of me that did that. And there's only one Carol, really, just lots of different parts of me. But I had no knowledge of it. Um, and that was the difficult bit for people to comprehend. How did you become aware of what was kind of going on? Because it must have been quite confusing at first. I've had it a long time mm. and it was only when I was in my 40s that I was diagnosed. My children were very clear when I talked to them after I'd been given the diagnosis that it all made sense to them. They were aware that I would be telling them one moment to go and get a certain outfit on and they'd come down the stairs and I'd be telling them off for coming in the outfit because I'd switched in the process. None of us knew what was really going on at the time. And it was when I was in hospital, um, a psychiatrist I saw actually suggested to me I might have a dissociative disorder. Um, to be honest, I didn't believe her. Um, I'd been so many labels and misdiagnoses, I didn't trust what they were saying. 
and it took some time before I was formally assessed. And when two doctors sat there and told me independently of one another that I was categorically DID, um, it was only at that point I started to believe it. But I still felt a great deal of denial. Mm -hmm. And I actually rang my daughter um, and said to her they'd given me this label. And she said, oh, mum, that makes so much sense. And I was so cross with her for supporting their diagnosis. I hung up on her at the time. Um, and she and I both now look back and think they were so right. The more I've learned about dissociation, the more I realise it's it's exactly what I was suffering from and what I suffer from. How does it feel to know what it is and have a name to give what's happening? At the time, I didn't realise how important it was. Looking back now, nearly 10 years on, I kind of see that it was the catalyst for me to get the help I needed. It certainly got me out of hospital. It got me the right treatment with a battle. Um, and it enabled me and, and it enables me now to understand how my brain works. My brain is no different from anybody else's except I had a few more blocks in the way. Um, and certainly my fight, fight and flight response was much more heightened than my self-regulation and self-soothing. So those things had to be retrained to start to sort of balance that equilibrium, really. What did treatment involve for you? The only recommended treatment is long-term talking therapy, which to get in this country is not always easy. The NHS are very unwilling to diagnose or to fund. I was fortunate that I managed to battle with my daughter to get me funding and my funding did come through the NHS but I know I'm one of a very small number of people who've been successful that way. The first stage is stabilising me so we spent nearly a year um, actually trying to stabilise myself so that meant a lot of learning about internal dialogue, accepting that the switches weren't as scary as I thought they were, accepting the parts belonged to myself and that the memories they carried belonged to myself the second year and a half of therapy, we, we did a lot of work on the trauma memories. And that didn't mean regurgitating trauma. It just meant me trying to accept what had happened and come to terms with it, talking about how I felt about that memory or that emotion and coming to terms with it and learning to actually rebuild skills I hadn't got. I remember one of the things that my psychologist did at the very beginning was to tell me to go and have fun. Um, I'd never been paddling in the sea and I'd got three old, old you know, adult children at that point and they'd all paddled in the sea but I'd never done it and so he one day set me a challenge as homework to go and paddle um, and so I, I did, I went to the beach and he'd pre-warned me that the minute I'd actually done the activity I'd feel terrible because all the emotions of what I'd lost came to the fore and I suddenly realised the stark reality of how much of my childhood had lost um, but that enabled me to start growing and developing and to rebuild my life, I guess. And then the last 18 months of therapy was all about rebuilding. Um, I didn't want to fully integrate. And so I learned to live as a collaborative team, really, with a small number of parts that are still present. Are you comfortable um, telling us any more about what happened in your childhood that led to this? If you don't, that's fine. No, but... it's fine. Um, as a child, I had a very chaotic childhood. I was abused by a number of people, emotionally, physically, sexually. And as a result, over time, my default mechanism was just to dissociate, to switch off whenever things got difficult. Have you ever met anyone else with DID or have you communicated with them? Yes. Um, part of the reason for the blog was um, 
I wanted people to understand my journey, but I also wanted to be able to help other people. I've met quite a number of people. There's a local, well, a national group called First Person Plural, and I'm part of that group. Um, and they have occasionally have open meetings. And the very first time I saw someone else switch, I was a bit perplexed. And if I'm honest, afraid. Um, but over time, I kind of realized that that's what I did and, and was doing all the time. And I've learned so much from other people. And um, when we do get together and we chat about, you know, our own, we laugh about ourselves at times. You know, there was, I'm always buying the same book twice, if not three times, forgetting I've bought it or buying an item of clothing and thinking, where on earth has that come from? Um, and when I talked to other people, they were doing exactly the same thing, which actually made me feel better. I thought, well, it's not just me then. And it is helpful to be able to help other people, but also to meet other people, I think, with the disorder. None of us are the same. We're all very different because we all have different trauma histories. Um, and not everybody's got a childhood trauma history. They've had trauma at a later stage. But the majority of people I've met have had childhood trauma. It sounds like it took you a very long time to be diagnosed properly. What would you say to anybody who thinks, well, I don't know, I suppose has any kind of inkling that this might be something that they have? Because I don't know how much insight you sort of get. I think sometimes you're aware that things aren't right. For me, I was aware people were telling me that I was doing something and I had no recollection of it. So people would say, oh, you've done this. And I'd be going, but I haven't done that. I actually I was laid on my bed and, and actually I'd gone off and shouted at somebody or thrown something or whatever it was. I started thinking, why am I doing this? Is this, are they true or am I, you know? And so I think if you have doubts, my advice would be there are online tools available. Um, one is called the Dissociative Experiences Scale. Um, it's readily available online and you can self-score. If that indicates, and it will tell you, on the online tools will tell you if you potentially have a dissociative disorder and it's not a diagnostic tool but what it does do is flag up if your level of dissociation requires further investigation and I would suggest that as a first starting point and talking to your you know health professional whether that be your GP or if you're involved in mental health services your mental health team. So were people aware of what was going on kind of before you were? Yes. What were they saying that I imagine it must have been quite unsettling, not knowing what you'd done. People would say, um, at the time I was in the hospital, and they'd say to me, oh, you've just shouted at so-and-so, or you've just told so-and-so to be quiet. And I'd be going, I've no idea what you're talking about. I actually didn't believe them. I thought they were just making things up. Um, and I got very sort of disconcerted by it, I think, at the time. Um, but then eventually I started to question myself a little bit more. And I was aware that... I wasn't always aware of what was going on in the sense of I'd, I'd come to, I'd be in the middle of a conversation with someone and I had no idea the conversation had moved on and I'd come back and I had no idea what the sentence or topic we were talking about. And so I began to realise that there was something not right. Mm. I just wasn't fully aware of what it was. How has it affected your relationship with friends and family? With the children at the time, because I was also away from them within being in hospital, I had a very lengthy period in hospital, which wasn't great. My relationship with the children became quite fractured. I didn't feel like their mum anymore. Um, I certainly felt like I knew them and I was their friend and I cared about them, but I really didn't feel like a mum anymore. And so once I'd started treatment, I actually began to rebuild those relationships. And I think that the, the icing for me on the cake of that was my daughter became my carer. 
And so for a number of years, she was the person who would always go to meetings with me. She was the person who would fight for me, always challenge professionals to get the service I needed. And she wouldn't, she was always worried about me. And as I began through treatment, maybe two and a bit years into treatment, she actually said one day, I think I, I said I was going out for the day on my own and she was mortified. But then she said, well, I'll trust you. But the last time you went off on your own for a day, you tried to hurt yourself. So I'm a bit worried. And I was kind of like, but everyone says it's okay and I can do this. And so once she'd started to rebuild her relationship with me, she then decided to go off and emigrate. Um, and for me, it was a joy because we'd, it was a sign for me more than any that I was be getting better because I knew my daughter so well that there was not a chance she would have left if she felt I was a danger or at risk or things weren't going well. And so she's been gone two years now and we've rebuilt a relationship of mother and daughter. Even though she's 4,000 miles away, we have a much better mother-daughter relationship instead of being a carer and a carer, really. That's lovely. Because I feel like when you become the carer for your parent, it changes things so much. It did, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. just being able to rebuild that yeah. is huge. And I think for my friends, I had some friends I lost because they couldn't comprehend or understand what was going on. I had some friends who were frightened of being out with me for lunch in case I switched. But I had some friends who stuck by me, um, and I still regard them as friends now, and, and they accept me for who I am. And I found that really invaluable. So my advice to other people is, if you, you, know, if you have a friend who's got a dissociative disorder, don't run away from them. They're not all bad and scary. You know, it is just an, an illness. It's a condition. And actually, with the right treatment, they can become so much better. And your job, I think, as a friend is, and a family member is to support them. So do you work? At the moment, I don't. I used to work. I was a civil servant for a, a few years um, before I got really unwell. I'm currently retraining to be a psychotherapist. Um, and the decision to do that was because I realised how well and invaluable psychotherapy was for me and how talking therapy made such a difference. So I'm back at university now doing my master's and hoping eventually to, to qualify um, and help other people in the, the sphere, really. That's really fantastic. Um, just thinking back to when you were a civil servant, though, because I'm assuming that was sort of nine to five type yeah. going into an office. How did you manage that? At the cost of everything else, I would go out in the morning and I think it confused everybody because I would be so efficient and I'd leave the house and I'd go out and I'd come home at the end of the day and all I could do was sleep. I was so drained and so tired. And I now realise I was probably switching all over the place at work, but nobody realised. But the effort for me was just so draining. Um, and looking back, I think... It was the, you know, I, I struggled through for far too long, really. Do you think um, your colleagues or your bosses ever had any kind of indication that you might have been struggling? I was a bit of a workaholic and I would turn up. Um, I wanted to be good at something. And so I would turn up and work, you know, a nine, ten hour day if that's what it needed. Because I wanted them to accept me and to think I was doing a good job. And unfortunately, you know, as I say, that cost my family a lot of time of me as well. I'd come home and literally just not be able to make tea. I'd just crash. I think it's really interesting to be talking about work because it's the kind of condition that I think some people might assume if it's got to a certain level, work isn't necessarily an option. How have you managed to sort of find a happy medium? I waited till just before the end of therapy. I was no longer, you know, chaotic. Life was stable and it felt stable. It, it does feel stable. 
Um, and I would not have been able to do this without being stable. I wouldn't have been able to have even considered going back to university. Um, and so I think for me, once I felt stable, once I was sort of three years into therapy, and that's when I started to think about, could I go back to, to doing something? Um, and I know already sort of in my own mindset that when I do go back to work, potentially it would be better for me to not do a full-time work, but to do four days or something like that, because I need to take that extra time. It's a juggle act, and I guess it will be a juggling act all the way through. What do you wish people knew about did? I wish they realised it wasn't a personality disorder. And I wish they realised that for, to meet someone with a dissociative disorder isn't as scary as it sounds, that I don't have, you know, seven heads. Because I think that's one thing a lot of people have said to me, oh, you must have lots of different... Well, no, I don't. I'm one person with just lots of different parts. And even though I didn't believe that myself at the beginning, following treatment, I came to realise that they were parts of me, just we had this huge amnesic block between us. So one thing that I think was really interesting about this whole conversation is did isn't something that I've known about. And I think that's common. Like there's a lot of conversation about anxiety and depression and kind of the more common palatable mental illnesses, mm. but not so much about the things that might make someone more difficult in terms of work or it might affect their relationships mm. such as did or schizophrenia um or conditions where let's be honest they might be more likely um to go into a mental health unit yeah. for a period of time as carol did so i'm really glad we got to talk to her uh, i think it's really important that she raised the fact about nhs funding at the moment or basically the lack of nhs funding um for talking therapies um, I was fairly shocked that she had to really battle to get funding. I mean, she made it very clear that it wasn't easy and that it was a battle. Um, and I think I found that shocking because I think basically if you ask the man on the street, you know, oh, does somebody with schizophrenia or does somebody with, they might not know what did is, but I'm, that's why I'm saying schizophrenia. Like, oh, do you think they get adequate support, you know, if they went to their GP and it turned out that that's what they were dealing with? Would they be automatically be given lots of support? I think most people would just go, oh, yes, they must do. Well, it doesn't look like it, does it? So I'm quite angry about that. I'm very glad that Carol's raising awareness of it. Because I think we always assume that the more kind of serious, debilitating conditions, well, obviously, they must be getting treatment. Mm. And the fact that you know, Carol and people going through similar things are still going through waiting lists yeah. and battling doctors. That's yeah. really frustrating. Well, it's not just frustrating. It's completely unacceptable, isn't it? Can you imagine the, the things that she's had to deal with? I mean, she talked all about, you know, her different identities, kind of blacking out, not knowing what's going on. So you, you have that side to yourself that you're managing, basically. But then you're also fighting to get treatment, which is just ridiculous so this is goodbye from mentally yours so go away enjoy your day get on with all your chores from mentally 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 yours mentally yours mentally yours
If you've been affected by anything we've been chatting about in today's show, please give the Samaritans a ring. You can call them on 116-123 or you can look, find their website, which is samaritans.org. Thanks very much to our guest Carol, to our producer Sam Bonham and thank you to Lucy Baker for the jingles. If you'd like to join us online to chat about mental health, we've got a great Facebook group, just look up Mentally Yours. Also we have a Twitter feed called Mentally Yours with YRS at the end. See you next week. Mm-hmm.